There are legends, and then there are legends. Today, my guest is Jackie D. Lynch, Senior Advisor at Gift of Hope, but more importantly, Senior Advisor to Organ and Tissue Donation for the past 35 years. Jack is a legend across the country with regards to organ and tissue donation. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the Jackie D. Lynch method. We're going to talk about the challenges in organ and tissue donation over the last 35 years, but more importantly, the movement that has been Jack Lynch. Jack, can you tell us a little bit just about how you got started in organ and tissue donation? I've never thought about that question. How did I get started? In large part, I think it had a lot to do with my previous employer. I was a research representative for Sandoz Pharmaceutical. And back around 1985, if you will, Sandoz began to publicly let the healthcare public know that they were coming up with a new anti-rejection drug known as Sandomune. I was one of those specialty reps responsible for the clinical trials. And some of those uh, programs in which we did the clinical trials was right here in Chicagoland, Northwestern University of Chicago and several other centers. I was advocating for the transplant centers to quite frankly come alive, conduct those clinical trials. And that was the first piece. But it wasn't until one of the programs, I prefer not mentioning which one, but the chairman of the program, who was one of the chief investigators of this drug, he did an article uh, in the Chicago Tribune in the late 80s. Basically, he talked about the evolution of this new drug coming to market and how it was going to normalize transplantation, and that his clinical trial findings thus far demonstrated that we were going to get to a point very soon where taking an organ from a dead person, placing it into an individual that needed that organ was going to become commonplace. But he, he indicated that the recovery of organs was a situation in which Organs had to be recovered from a specifically dead type of individual, meaning a brain-dead patient. And he said the problem with that is that we have an opt-in system of getting consent from families. And the consent, for the most part, had only come from whites who had been asked across the country, virtually no African-Americans were consenting to permit their loved one's organs to be recovered. And for the foreseeable future, he saw no reason why that trend was ever going to change. be perfectly honest with you, I took offense. Why? Why did you take offense? Well, I wondered where he got his data from. I wondered who he asked. I wondered what research went into such a comment. I knew that I was probably amongst top, I, I, well, quite frankly, there couldn't have been three African-Americans in the state of Illinois that had any working knowledge on this subject matter. And I probably had more than anyone, and he never, ever asked me. 
So my question is, well, who did he ask and why didn't he ask me? So quite frankly, um, on my own, right then and there, that Sunday morning, I got on the phone and called two of my friends that one had great writing skills, Natalie Henderson, and I called another who could help me formulate the model. And we were going to get out and find out why there were so few African-American donors. And I did this on my own. I was still employed by Sandoz. But I wanted to understand the essence of why this guy thought he was right and why he took the liberty of defining the minority community about what they wouldn't do, when quite frankly, all indications was that he'd never asked anybody from the community. He just basically made an assumption. And I think that that was a liberty that he took, that I took offense to. Okay, so you write this paper, you present the paper. Well, we did the research first. Okay. And the research is that I started interviewing urbanologist from the University of Chicago, Dr. Robert Wilson, who was head of the uh, social justice division at University of Chicago. I interviewed emergency room doctors at Jackson Park, at Methodist Hospital in Gary, primarily uh, inner city hospitals. I interviewed psychologists, urbanologists, radio talk show hosts at WVON and, and places of that nature. But there was still something missing because I was already in calling on hospitals. I had no problem in doing the most important piece of the research, and that was done at Cook County Hospital. And what we did was during the summer month of June, July, and August, on my own, I would go to the hospital, uh, the old Cook County Hospital, sit in the emergency room, after 10 o'clock at night, and I would watch the trauma cases roll in. And I would see some of the most horrific situations you wanted to, with gray matter coming out of the skull, uh, uh, patients all shot up, being rushed in, being attempt to resuscitate them. And then I would see, you could almost identify the families one, maybe three hours at most, after that patient rolled in, you knew that that was his family coming in because they would run up to the clerks. They would be very concerned and the clerk would basically kind of just blow them off, have a seat. Someone will come talk to you. I knew that that was the case that came in several hours earlier. And I began to see a pattern as to how physicians, nurses, and allied healthcare professionals were interacting with those families. I would sit where I could hear the doctor come out and give families updates. And it wasn't that they necessarily meant any offense, but it was the verbiage, not only the verbiage, but the mannerism uh, that was displayed. And I began to see a pattern, if you will, about the things not to do. Not so much as to what you should convey to a family, But the things not to do, you should not assume that based on their ethnicity and their color, that they don't understand you. You shouldn't assume that simply because, and specifically in the black community, that you identify the legal next of kin and you go directly to them. 
because they are the legal Mexican. There may be others, and I find it more commonplace, that there are others within the structure of the family that are, quite frankly, the spokesperson for the family. So a pattern developed for me. We went back, we correlated all of our findings and the research that I had done there for almost five months. And I presented this paper to uh, the chairman of Transplant at Northwestern. And I told him why I wanted him to review this, because I had read his comments almost a half a year earlier. It wasn't eight hours before he contacted me and asked me to come in and meet with him again. I thought he was going to be very offended, and he wasn't. He wasn't apologetic, but he wasn't offended. He basically said, okay, Mr. Smarty, since you think you know better, here's what I'd like to do. We are writing a grant to Hersha. This grant's going to include an outreach component of uh, working with uh, specifically minority communities and the consent process. I'd like for you to do it. Well, I wasn't looking for that position, but I got made an offer I couldn't refuse. And somehow, another after I talked it over with my wife, I accepted, I left a full-time job and took this consulting position with the Illinois Transplant Society. So you left a full-time job to take a job that you didn't know what was going to transpire. But after so long, you wound up becoming the fourth employee of the Regional Organ Bank of Illinois, which was the name before Gift of Hope. And tell us what that experience was like waiting around for someone to have an impending death before you got a chance to go and talk to the families. Unfortunately, you're absolutely correct. First off, the experience did not start off as a welcoming experience because uh, I did my initial training at the University of Chicago Department of Surgery Division of Transplantation. What they did was they gave me a cell phone that was as large as a overnight bag. They gave me a pager and they more or less told me that go home when a hospital had a potential organ donor that was black, they would call me and uh, have me go out and talk to that family. I will let you know that I walked out of that meeting totally despondent. I got to my car. My car would not start. And I walked from the University of Chicago over to Operation Push, I had never been to Operation Push in my life. And I met with Reverend Jesse Jackson after sitting in the lobby for six hours or so. The receptionist finally got me in to see him. And I told him about what I was called to do. I have never seen that man so puzzled as he looked at me and listened to me. He picked up his phone. And he called the owner of WVON, Mr. Purpose Span. He called a uh, radio personality, Lou Palmer. He called uh, an urbanologist over at the University of Chicago. And he asked those three individuals to meet with me. And quite frankly, that's how 
I got started because initially they had hired uh, myself and a black female minister, and she was going to do the community outreach. But she only lasted four months because at every turn, the uh, first employee, there were four of us, but the first employee was a lady PR person. And she didn't think much of this experiment at all. And she made it extremely difficult for not only the female minister, but myself. I drew strength from that, to be perfectly honest with you. It didn't take long because of what John Lewis would call getting into good trouble, that I came to realize that simply being a black individual, going to the hospital and sitting in a waiting room with a family that one did not know me and knew even less about the subject matter, and then to gain consent from that family because I elected to take on Northwestern Hospital Chairman of Surgery. Well, that in itself was a prescription for failure. Quite frankly, we needed public awareness. We needed to have a focus on the African-American community. All that I had done with my two friends prior to coming on indicated that those two things had to go hand in hand. And I was met with a, a ton of resistance. And let me let me state a problem. Once the CEO, Jerry Anderson, was hired, we the four of us were in a meeting and the PR director indicated that there was a need to get a proclamation, if you will, from the city of Chicago. And she had been trying for years and years to get one from the Daily regime, the Bolandic regime. And now that Harold Washington had come on board, she didn't see any possibility at all of getting a proclamation. Well, after the meeting, I walked out of that meeting. We had a little office downtown. I walked over to City Hall, went to the fifth floor, And I just stood outside the mayor's office. And after being there for about an hour and a half, the police officer at the desk came over and asked me what I was waiting for. And I told him I was trying to find someone that could help me see Mayor Washington because I represented the Oregon Donation Program. I don't have a business card yet. And we want to get a proclamation and a photo op with him. This officer uh, looked around, and one of Mayor Washington's liaison, a a guy by the name of Steve Coakley, was walking past, and he grabbed him, introduced two of us, and quite frankly, within five minutes, I was back in the outer office of Mayor Washington. His secretary uh, took my request. I had to write my name on a piece of paper because they hadn't given me business cards, And she gave me a date to come for a photo op that they would have a a proclamation ready for us. I asked if I could bring uh, the administration with me. And she says, yeah. And she indicated it'd be better if you brought some small kid because we will take a picture of it and send it off to the media. I was on high alert. I ran back to the office, told them what I had achieved. Jerry was elated, but the PR director was beside herself. She said, that's not your job. You are not supposed to be doing this kind of stuff, yada, yada. 
but it's what she did when I was walking out of the office. She asked Jerry, the new CEO, she said to him, how long does this grant run? And Jerry indicated we got another four, maybe five months on this grant. And she indicated, okay, good. Well, we can be done with this experiment in the next five months. So Jack, facing all of these challenges, facing all of these naysayers and only having, let's say, one champion, what kept you persevering? Because at this point, you're a consultant. At this point, it's not really a full-time job. And from a philosophical space, how did you keep going? I never believed that my opinion didn't count. I thought as a result of my own research, gainfully employed by another firm, but my findings demonstrated that it was so crystal clear to me that the white community was very comfortable in talking at the black community, telling us about what we do and don't do. And unfortunately, so many of us adhere to being told rather than formulating their own opinion. I never, ever thought that I couldn't change the status of this healthcare problem. I thought with enough time and with the fact that nothing before me had ever been done anywhere else in the country. So I just thought about the fact that, quite frankly, a clean slate. And I just needed to be a good steward. I'm trying to be tactful when I say this, but I wasn't going to let anybody get me off of what I knew needed to be done. John Lewis says it best. I got into good trouble virtually every 15 minutes. And you got into good trouble by creating a method called the Jack Lynch method, where you learned and taught the art of speaking with families and not at families. And you also mentioned that you were only one of three people who knew anything about it in the state of Illinois. But help us understand how you were able to train folks across the country to be able to replicate this method of speaking with families and not at families. That's also a piece of the good trouble. If you recall me saying I did my research at Cook County Hospital for three months in the waiting room, in the summertime, at night, watching trauma cases roll in, watching physicians, watching nurses and other healthcare professionals, how they, in some sense, potentially unbeknownst to them, how they were insulting these families, talking at them over their head, 30-letter words. And I would write it down, and I saw that kind of pattern consistently. And what I did when I got in front of families, and the first case that I ever did was at, uh, again, Methodist Hospital over in Gary. I got called. I drove like a bat out of you-know-where to get over to that hospital. Got there, and it was total chaos with this family. I mean, they were beating the walls. They were physically and verbally upset about what they had been told by their loved one. 
And then it's my job to go in right after that and interact with them. I just remembered my observations at Cook County. I needed to take the bricks down that divided me and the families. And those bricks consist of making sure that I didn't give them more of what they had already gotten, listening to them. But what I perfected was asking permission to be perfectly honest, asking permission to be very candid on all their questions, saying to those families, there are no dumb questions because I'll do my level best not to give you a stupid answer. But if you ask, I'm going to be blatantly honest. And quite frankly, it began to work because I, I have fairly good listening skills and I would listen to their questions. And I would say to them uh, to questions such as, well, if he's brain dead, why can't you just go out and go down to the morgue and get another brain and put it in him? Mm. And I would say, well, that seems reasonable, but mankind hasn't learned to do that yet. Correct. What we have learned to do is to take a pancreas out, take a kidney out of someone who is, in fact, brain dead and place that into someone else. I would say to those families, we know what we know. This issue of brain death is a difficult one to explain. So let me make sure you understand what it is. And I would go through my way of explaining it from the neck up. There is no circulation at all. From the neck, shoulders down, artificially, we are still maintaining a heartbeat. We're still maintaining all the activities of the body from the shoulders down. But that's not what life is about. Life is about where your brain is sending messages to all the components in the body. Eventually, the body will catch up with the fact that the messages that it is getting are not coming from the brain that they uh, and they won't be able to sustain that body, no matter if we continue to give a lot of fluids, a lot of meds. At some point, the body's going to give in and stop functioning. It doesn't matter that we go down to the morgue and get another brain because that brain has been without cerebral activity. There's not been blood flowing through it. Blood carries oxygen. That's your loved one's problem. His brain stopped accepting oxygen. Let me ask any of you, how long can you hold your breath? So if you can't hold your breath after seven minutes, and there are those who deep dive and free dive and can hold their breath seven minutes. But if you can't hold your breath after seven minutes, you're going to pass out. Well, he's been here three days without any oxygen uh, getting to his brain, and he's not getting any oxygen because the brain is no longer accepting oxygen that's carried in the blood. The brain has died. And when you explain it in that fashion, I began to take that message around the country. And I would spend a week and I went as far down to, I went to Hawaii. I went to Maine. I went to Seattle. I went to Florida and all points in between. And I would spend three, four days and we would do role playing. And all of that was based on my experiences at Cook County Hospital. And I would shoot at people that thought it was simple to do. 
and I would shoot at them and put them in a position whereby you may be big shot here, you may be a big shot there, but in front of a family, you're going to get eaten up if you perform like this. Absolutely. But Jack, you also, you know, it's funny you mentioned earlier that somebody said, well, that's not your job. You took on a lot of different jobs. Not only did you support the families, but you found that it was important to then go out in the communities and help them understand the process of donation, how to advocate for themselves. And you created the first African-American task force made up of volunteers who worked for you and who canvassed the city of Chicago and the suburbs to really talk to people of color about donation. I liken what we've been able to achieve to an eight-cylinder car that in the beginning was hitting on only two of those eight cylinders. You're right. We put together a task force consisting of donor families, patients that were waiting, community people that were interested in the subject. And quite frankly, uh, the first CEO, he basically, through his ineptness, if you will, he helped me. He was giving a talk in front of a, a group of black nurses. He was talking to them about organ donation. He meant no disrespect, but one of the nurses asked him, what are you going to do about getting into the black community? And it was just his answer that opened up doors for me. He says, what am I going to do? I'm not going to do anything. Well, they took that in general, that nothing was going to be done to educate the black community. And boy, those nurses lit into him. After that meeting was over, he called me right away. And those nurses consisted of uh, Pat Gaddis. Uh, she was a transplant nurse over at University of Illinois. Uh, another lady by the name of Pat, I forget her last name. And there was a intake coordinator, Ann Washington. And all of those nurses were the beginning of the task force that we put together. We ended up with six divisions downstate, two in the northern part of the state of Illinois, a division in northwest Indiana, several divisions in the Chicagoland area. We ended up with well over 125 volunteers that crisscrossed the state. All of that being said, not only was the support lacking, but the support was necessary. So we weren't getting something that we needed. So again, we got into good trouble. From WVON, which is a urban radio station, an AM station, I got a chance to meet other people in the media. I got a chance to meet uh, Mary D., who was the community affairs director at WGN-TV. Wanda Wells uh, was the community affairs director for Fox, Channel 32. And after meeting them and fumbling through presentations on TV, I started getting calls from Art Norman. I started getting calls from even more big name people, Bill Curtis. And Bill Curtis uh, from CBS Channel 2, he came out and followed me through a case that I did. After that was on TV for several days, 
Then Renee Ferguson, the investigative reporter from Channel 5, Renee came out and did a case with me at University of Chicago, starting from A to Z, all the way through the entire case. And it didn't cost Gift of Hope one penny, not a penny. But all of those successes weren't received uh, well. But because of that comment that I heard the PR director make to Jerry about after this experiment is over, uh, we can be done with this. Quite frankly, all she wanted to do was to make sure that they had heard to the grant that they had gotten to start Gift of Hope, and they had addressed the issue of minority donation. It was a complete failure. Well, I made myself indispensable. That's what I did. I made it so if you didn't hire me, you were a damn fool. In 1987, when the grant expired, Dr. James Wolf was chairman at Northwestern. Dr. Frank Stewart was chairman of transplantation at University of Chicago. They told Jerry Anderson to hire me full time because the numbers demonstrated that Dr. Wolf was wrong in believing that blacks were not going to donate it because in that uh, nearly 11-month period of time, I had approached 27 families with three out of four of those families giving consent, unprecedented anywhere else in the country. And to be perfectly honest with you, we never look back. Jack, one of the things that you mentioned earlier um, was that people didn't want you doing jobs that weren't yours. But one of the things that you did was the African-American task force you created here in Chicago. But people replicated that or they tried uh, unsuccessfully to replicate that. But over the course of your career, you've done a lot of jobs that weren't yours. And you've been so successful at all of them uh, leading up to your 35-year history with Gift of Hope. You've outlasted three CEOs. You've seen people come and go in the industry, but yet you have continued to prevail. What's been the secret? What's your secret sauce? Well, I, I think it's important to mention uh, regarding your your concern about the task force. One of the most significant things that uh, we did in terms of getting well over 120 volunteers is that we didn't dictate to them. We empowered them. You know, these are people, common folks from the community, you know, owners of the corner store, uh, the barber. All of them had either themselves or family members that were waiting for transplants or somehow or another wanted to help address this subject. When you take the guy that is a cleaner at the newsstand and you make him chairman of a division, he's got something he can be proud of. So we empowered people like that. We empowered not only donor families who are already vested, but folks who never would get an opportunity to lead anything, we gave them ownership because it's their community. And therefore, I used to, quite frankly, feel very bad that we weren't paying them because they were working seven days a week. They would get mad at the fact that things were going on in another division that they wanted to replicate 
Well, I would say then let's interact, find out how they were able to get into 20 churches, how they got in and on the radio. I mean, these people felt good about what they were doing because we gave it to them. And that's the secret sauce, if you will. And speaking of pride, what would you say you're most proud of throughout your illustrious career? You know, you may find this strange for me to say, but what I'm most proud of is not the things that I'm noted for. What I'm most proud of is that I think they hired me to satisfy the grant. So they hired me to be that black guy sitting by the door. What they didn't count on is that I would redesign the door. What I'm most proud of is the fact that as I've crisscrossed this country and trained others, what I'm most proud of is that we've gone from a state of existence whereby those who interact, and specifically with Black families, they no longer just have to be Black. I'm most proud of the fact that all ethnic groups, uh, and I'm speaking of whites, that are trained by me, have been able to put their isms that aren't profitable aside when they go into the room with a family, recognize that they're vulnerable, and say just that. You know, I really don't know what to tell you, but let me be honest. And when you're with an African-American family and you display that, when you're with an African-American family and you show them how much you care before you attempt to show them how much you know, you're going to be successful. I don't care about all the beating on the walls, all the loud outbursts, whether they're intoxicated, any of those things that make uh, requesters walk out the room. If you recognize that that family's in pain, and if you take down the bricks that divide us, you will find that black families are no less willing than any other ethnic group to say yes to donation. In speaking of training, 10 years ago, you and I started working together. Okay. And I came from a totally different background, human resources. What made you think that you could train me to continue your legacy? That's a loaded question. Well, when you think about it, you have been very protective of your legacy. You have been the only one who has really created the trajectory for your legacy for African-American folks, for people of color. You even incorporated the Latinx community into your outreach. And so those are heavy shoes to fill. What were you looking for? So you displayed, Marion, something that was critical and very much needed. I almost said you were a raw product, but no, you were quick with, you are quick with it. You were someone that shot from the hip and you didn't mind expressing yourself. And having said that, what I needed to do was to take that tremendous energy you had and get you to see within it that some of the ways in which you were going about it were wrong, but I needed you to keep that energy. And the truth is, is not so much was it me but the fact that you were willing to listen and learn. And we brought you down some pegs, but I needed that energy that you displayed. And the other thing that I've heard, and quite frankly, I heard from you, you weren't trying to be me. You weren't trying to 
ambush me like I had been had done to me any number of times because I'm a giving individual. You just wanted to do better than anyone else, including me. And quite frankly, I've never had any doubts about the fact that not only are you smarter, but going through my training model is not easy. And you withstood it and you never, ever gave me flack. But you're not a yes person. So I needed that energy and you displayed it, but you also were willing to learn. And as a result of that, look at where we are now. I threw you right into the fire pit and I didn't try to save you. I told you to go to AMAT. And I told you, once you get to that first meeting, I'm not going with you, but I want you to be the same person that you are here in Illinois. And it took you what? One presidency before you became president? Because everyone in the country that I've trained are members of AMAT. And I knew that they would be looking to you for input. It's a heavy responsibility, if you will, to know that people are watching you. I gladly accepted that, and so did you. So somewhere in the, in the essence of what I said, says that you were just so much better than me, and I saw it. Yeah, you know, I just think that it is a heavy responsibility to bear, to think of just continuing your legacy. But I don't think of it as continuing your legacy. I think of it as just the work has to continue to get done in the manner in which you have set us up to continue that work. But as you think about what you want to happen, what you want your legacy to be, what would you tell us, one me particularly, to gift of hope, to really embody the last 35 years of what you've done and what you want the next 35 to look like? I don't think I have to worry about that because as long as you are here, you will not let them dismantle. Oh, I don't know if I'll be here for 35 Well, years. I don't think you will. <laughs> no, I, I agree with that. But I don't think you would let them dismantle at all. You will fight to the end. But you know what? If you think about it, you won't need to do that. Where we have the community now, and you think of it in this way, if you will, you have a whole team of people whose responsibility is the community. That group of people are trying to find the time to fulfill the request. You're not going out to. So what I'm saying is that the public that we've represented for these 35 years, they won't tolerate anything less than your best they will complain and somebody will have to lay the cards on the table while you're not doing this any longer, while you're not doing that. So I think where we've gotten to, and no, in fact, I know I'm absolutely correct because the first year my wife and I were in the Bulletin Day Parade in a convertible car with two small children that were both in need of transplants that were sitting on, you know, on the back seat up on the ledge there. And we had these these banners on the side of the car. And I was running alongside handing out pencils and other trinkets saying organ donation. We were only able to stay in that parade in one of the most impoverished communities in Chicagoland. We were only able to stay in that parade on that route for about three blocks. And we had to pull out. 
people were saying very crude things. They were shouting obscenities. And for the safety of those two kids and my wife, we had to pull out of that parade. Well, fast forward, we're at a point whereby we no longer have to pull out of the parade. I mean, the most, if you will, insignificant folks that watch those, that parade, the Bobillion Day Parade, they're pulling out their driver's license as we go along. I'm talking about people with no jobs, you know, little education, showing I'm an, I'm an organ donor. So we've graduated. So if the disenfranchised are endorsing what we have done, trust me, the general public, and specifically the Hispanic and black community, won't accept anything less than the best from Gift of Hope. I dare them to try. So finally, Jack, what do you say to people who think of you as not only a friend, but a mentor, a confidant, uh, a champion, uh, and most importantly, the godfather of organ and tissue donation. What do you say, especially as you've often said, you know, I'm just a humble person from Morgan Park, but you have truly created something that not many people have done that we talk about all the time that not many people can get flowers for. And, you know, as you retire, what are your final words in terms of just your legacy? One of my advisors through the years was Reverend Clay Evans of Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church. And he was not only the minister there, but he was a uh, gospel singer. And he had a song that he wrote entitled, There's Room at the Cross for You. Well, I rewrote some of that title. And I just strongly believe that there's room at the top for you. It's the bottom that's crowded. As Dr. King said, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. I try to uplift people and I accept and request nothing less than that. Uh, be the best that you can be and let the motivation be correct. Let the motivation be that you're there to serve. So as humble as I claim to be, I'm not without feelings. And those feelings surround the fact that I never looked back to see the job that we were doing, but I'm so pleased that what we have achieved. And note I make that plural and not singular. We have saved thousands of people, and that is so frightening to me. And I'm not going to give you that humble thing, you know, I'm from this, I'm from that beginning. We've saved thousands of people. Thousands of people have their loved ones back. Tens of thousands. And I got into good trouble daily. I'm, I'm certain that there are those who are reveling at the fact that I'm leaving. But I coined a phrase, and I'll, I'll end it here. I coined a phrase, the way for adversity to catch up with you is for you to slow down and wait on it. Everybody doesn't have to sing my praise. Everybody doesn't have to sign on. But I'm not waiting on you 
and your criticism either. God didn't make any junk in me either. You know, Jack, that is uh, so apropos for you, considering the the countless conversations that we've had over the last 10 years. And, you know, one of the things you first told me when you took me on was, one, you go where I go, you do what I do, you say what I say, and then you create your own narrative. You coined the phrase road dog. That's right. And as your perpetual road dog. I just want to say thank you for the friendship and the relationship that we have created over the years and just allowing me to be a part of the Jack Lynch mystique as we talk about your legacy. And I know that retirement for you does not mean retirement. It means that a long chapter is closing, but the Jack Lynch era is going to start anew. And I'm excited to be a part of that and to see um, what this next chapter has in your book. So I'm so thankful for you being here today, taking time to talk to me about your illustrious career, but more importantly, about how you put your heart and soul into organ and tissue donation for the past 35 years. Well, from the beginning, when I found out that no one in this country believed that an impact could be made and that we could change minds, I took it to heart. And here we are, I'm a lot grayer, a little bit slower, but look at what we've done. And as one of my other advisors said to me often, Judge R. Eugene Pynchon, the struggle goes on. If my God says this about me, servant, well done, then I've done my job. Amen. This is Marion Shuck, uh, host of the podcast, Let's Talk Hope, with the legend Jack Lynch. And as his road dog, we are signing off, but just hoping that you liked what you heard today. And if you did, you can listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts to Let's Talk Hope. This podcast was produced by Rivet360.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you next week.